thank you for tuning in. This is the Emerging Markets Enthusiast Podcast, and I'm Patrick Alex, your host. On the show, we will be exploring the still and the leverage opportunities of entrepreneurship in emerging markets. We will be talking to founders, venture capitalists, ecosystem builders, and policymakers. I hope you enjoy the session, and let's dive right in. Hi, everybody. This is Patrick Alex from the Emerging Markets Enthusiast Podcast. And we are back live with another episode, this time a very special guest, Mario Mello, who is operating partner at Value Capital. Great pleasure having you on, Mario. To kick things off, I was wondering where are you dialing in from? Hi, Patrick. How are you? And also a special warm welcome for everybody who's listening to us. I'm from Sao Paulo based, but I'm in Angra right now. Uh, this is the advantage of uh, if there is any uh, that you can work for home. So I'm in Angra dos Reis, a beautiful place. I re recommend everybody to visit if they are in Brazil, in the real estate. Fantastic. Now, so great having you on and talking about uh, the elephant in the room, which is your recently launched uh, SPAC vehicle, which is the third largest in the region. But before getting to that, I wanted to hear a bit more about your journey. How did you make your way into the world of venture in LATAM, in Brazil? What is your personal story there? Yeah, I, I don't have the traditional story. So I think because I think people only believe in life, there is only one path. So it's good to share. I'm, I'm a civil engineer by background. I, I, I joined a bank that uh, doesn't exist anymore called Bank Boston. I used to have, and I'm very grateful for a very a strong management that I have. I was able to be an, a senior officer in the bank when I was 26 years old. Then I started that time 32 years ago. I think the more digital place that you could be at that time, I was in the card business. So I'm very glad that I entered the, the most dynamic consumer focus at that time. I worked there for several years. Then I moved to Visa to US. I stayed in Miami for seven years. I, I run Uh, marketing operations product for Latin America. Then I came back to Brazil in 2003. I, I worked for Eben Emro, who used to be Banco Real. I was an executive director working for Fab Barbosa, who was really creating an amazing bank experience. Then uh, I stayed there for five years. Then I moved to a family-owned bank called Safra. I worked with the family. And then uh, it was a gift uh, that uh, appeared in my life. I received an invitation to join PayPal as employee number two for Latin American operation. It was an amazing journey because 2010, they really allowed me to hire people ahead the curve. I stayed there, really revisit all my learnings. It was a tremendous opportunity. I also, I, this also... Inside me, I, I felt I was more an entrepreneur. I really was more risk-taking. PayPal was the perfect place to take a risk, to fail fast. They also allowed me to hire people ahead the curve. And the story was uh, amazing. I stayed there for eight years. I'm very grateful for what I learned at PayPal. And, and, and we moved PayPal from a very strong operation in the region. And when I was in 2011, I met uh, the management founders, uh, Scott Sobo and Cliff Sobo. They invited me to be in the advisory board. Uh, they, they thought, oh, Mario is working in PayPal. Maybe they understand fintech. So I, I stayed there. I started as LP. And then when I decided to change gears a little bit in 2019, it was a, a process that took me two years to really think about the give back to the country. I didn't know exactly what was it, but I decided to say I, I really need to 
do something, uh, start com stop complaining. And I remember, I think the Pandora box opened when I was in Harvard with a professor for political science said, leaders must act to bring hope. I decided to create an NGO that was proving uh, the control of the Brazilian Congress. It's called Poder do Voto in Brazil. And just to help people vote better. Why I'm saying this? Because 70% of the Brazilian doesn't know who they vote. Four months after they execute the vote for the Congress, and also we complain a lot. So, um, and because the technology is something that's really breaking, accelerating, bringing transparency, I said, why not an application that alerts you when the bill goes to the floor? Then you vote. Then you capture the vote, and then starting create a match. Then you press a button to say who from our state represent you the most, that you can vote better and also increase the citizenship. I call democracy do it at all. During this period, because of my advisor role, they said, no, Mario, stay closer. And then they invite me to be an operating partner. I love the, the space and I've been uh, working very close with the fintech and insurtech space for the region. For me, in my stage of the life, it's really about challenge my knowledge. Is really talking to people that I think are smart to see things differently. I heard another day that being intelligence is your is your, your ability to accumulate knowledge, but be wisdom is is the ability to let it go and to relearn and to rethink. So I, I like this challenge of the entrepreneurship and revisiting the, the problem and the opportunity. So I, today I locate a lot of time for Valor. I keep my NGO and my give back and I'm a board of public trade companies. And then Steer uh, Cliff, who is the chairman of the SPAC said, I'm thinking about SPAC, Mario. You, maybe you have, you want to join. And for me, it's about learning. It's about being close to smart people. And then I said, okay, I'm going to dive in. I accepted the, the role of the CEO of the SPAC, the Valor Latitude SPAC, that we, we, we did IPO 3rd to 4th of May, and we raised $230 million for the Latin America focus SPAC. A very impressive journey there of, of your career and uh, that mentality of paying it forward. Obviously, uh, at my day job at Endeavor, we have that really close to heart and it's, it's crucial for us uh, how we, we can have a wider impact and how business can have a wider impact also. And I, I think you you, you really uh, represent that also with your personal journey. Uh, so congrats to that. I, I think it's quite an inspiration. And uh, talking more about the SPAC, obviously, which uh, is, is always exciting and uh, I mean, there's really a hype and a lot of enthusiasm about SPACs. Uh, so I was I was wondering, what, why do you feel the timing is right to have a SPAC looking actively for a Brazilian company to acquire and then IPO? What, what do you feel about uh, SPACs in general? Uh, enlighten us a bit on that. I think I need to tell a little bit of a story. When I met Scott in 2011, he, of course, he was an entrepreneur, but and his father used to be an ambassador in Brazil, Cliff. I remember he's asking me, say, oh, everybody here in Sao Paulo use mobile and smartphones. Oh, can we understand why we don't have a VC here? No? <laughs> and so this, this, this view that's really, oh, why? No, this, this, this market, it's ready to be a disrupt because consumers are engaged in technology and, and, and they are really early adopters. No? This, I think, was the, 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 the milestone. So this was 2011. Uh, they really were entrepreneurs and he saw the leadership and the vision to create what is today a strong brand on the VC in the region. And when you think about this, SPAC, I believe, is the right moment because after 10 years, we have the maturity, we have the vintages to really uh, on the stage that we create uh, investment 
on Series A, early uh, Series B, and then we create the growth funds that more Series C, Series D. We're launching new two funds shortly. But when you think about it's it's really a cycle and it's a perfect time. You know, maybe three years ago, the region was not ready for a SPAC, but now everything is ripening, it's, it's there. And then the dynamic of the, of the Brazilian and the Latin America market, it's very strong. You know? So, and when we look about the SPAC market, uh, everybody's after the same target in the US. And I think we have the credibility because we have been 10 years in the market. We have uh, investing companies like Stone, GenePass, CargoX, Coinbase, because we also are very strong in cross border. Uh, companies, but we are uh, we have mentored the majority of the founders. We know the board members, so we do have the access and the credibility and the performance in our funds to go after. But to go direct to your point, we do see a clarity on the maturity of the market for SPAC right now. Oh, absolutely, uh, fully agree. I mean, just yesterday we had that news of uh, Berkshire Hathaway investing in New Bank, which just again shows the potential of the region. Then we had Clip, a newly coined unicorn in Mexico, the fourth within the last months uh it's just impressive how latam is on a on a roll currently and uh, i think this is going to keep on accelerating if you look at how much potential we still have ahead just recently when talking to an investor in mexico he was telling me that uh, every year he's saying this is the best year for vc in latam and he's, he has been saying that for the last three years and he was saying he's going to continue saying that for the next five years and uh, i agree with that i feel that there's a very interesting dynamic there but still obviously being listed in in the US is one of the main objectives, I'd say, for the dreamers, the entrepreneurs that really want to make it big. The objective is getting listed on on Nasdaq. And your spec, as far as I know, is also listed on on Nasdaq. And in that sense, I was wondering, uh, because we, we obviously want to get the full multiplier effect. We want to get the returns also that they come back into the region. What potential do you see potentially to have SPACs listed in Sao Paulo, to have them listed in the Mexican stock exchange? Do you see any feasibility at all to make that possible? Would it be even attractive? Because, I mean, if we look at the, the stock indices in the region, very much traditional companies, and we need that refresh, and SPACs potentially could be a way to, to achieve that. I do. I, I'm more familiar about the regulatory framework in Brazil, but I, I do believe that there is uh, ways in the structure to have a SPAC in Betrays, no? or something that will emulate a SPAC in Betrays. I'm not as familiar with the capital markets in Mexico or with the payment and fintech market in Mexico. So, but I believe also uh, Mexico has shown their dynamic and the capability to execute uh, something strong. And this is a little bit about the vision. When we, we think about the access of capital, NASDAQ and their track record still, uh, it's like it's the first league. You know? uh, we, we, so big, ambitious entrepreneurs want to be in the first league. We need complementary we do see a path uh, moving forward uh, to this. Because we are more cross-border, for us, made a lot of sense to do NASDAQ because of access to capital or access to... So we believe we're building bridges between two regions. For us, make more sense to do NASDAQ. No, I completely understand. And in terms of the target company you're, you're looking for, what company would you potentially get acquired in the spec and then uh, subsequently have publicly listed what sector what, what kind of company are you looking for actually? we're looking for companies more in, in the mature stage but also in the growth stage spacs of our side do this pack around one to three billion dollars but we have the capability to size up we have very strong investors in our pipe that say go after a, a big target and bring us a good asset we're very flexible on this on the 
target list is it's really focused on, on the region. So it's a SPAC that has the S1 file focused on the region. And then we're thinking about four arenas. One is FinTech. It's quite obvious. The second one is EduTech, Education Technology. The other one is health tech. And then we we also see a strong opportunity in e-commerce and logistics. So these are the four main segments that our targets, we are focused on and our file. And we believe that uh, when we analyze the soon unicorns or the pre-IPO or the unicorns region, we do have a, around $100 billion opportunity. We, we can easily met the reason $100 billion opportunity. So this is something that we believe that our brand, uh, our operating team, our founder team, and our history in the region, we can be a good solution because one thing also is why SPAC, no? and, and then we can talk to this more. Exactly. Uh, why, why SPAC? Yeah, let, let me put that right, right back to you. Yeah? Why do you feel SPAC is a, is a, is a good way to, to now list companies or even a possible alternative to the other paths to, to get publicly listed? I, I think the SPAC has uh, some advantage. Now, in our case, we have created a booking. We know the target and we have an operating team that go after the, the target. But also, this operating team will bring the assets, not all the money, to execute the strategy. Uh, so this also is very important. And we are talking about founding team and our board, Elio Magalhães, who used to be the CEO of Citibank and then the Latin America head of Amex, chairman of the Banco do Brasil, Linda Holtenberg, that doesn't need interest. Everybody knows that Brian Brooks, uh, should be the currency head, also a legal counsel of Coinbase and, and Barry Angle used to run Latin America for the U.S. and also here already create and and despec a very successful uh, spec uh, in U.S. Uh, and then we have the ambassador that is being a really someone that understand the, the the region, understand the regulatory, understand and also an entrepreneur Scott who has been uh, successful uh, the leader behind the the Valor brand on the VC side and Doug Smith who's our CFO. So the spec one way is a Private transaction, so uh, uh, there is more clarity, there is more certainty, there is higher, faster access to money. And also, uh, I think it's important to say that when we analyze a lot of the IPOs, the first day trade up on the, the pop-up trade on the majority of the tech, the variance uh, we can share the study is around 56%. So 50% first day trade is a lot of money on the table for the investors and the founders. I spec is a 3% variance. So the certainty, the clarity, and the opportunity that we have to add someone that will bring operation, and there is less stress. The market's closed right now. No, there is uh, less uh, uh, SPAC transactions. So there is a huge opportunity right now that someone that instead of launching IPO say, do I need to book? Do I need to do discount? How's going to create this structure? Uh, we'll have huge op uh, opportunity to align with a SPAC and do a private transaction because in the end it's M&A. It's M&A of a company that's already being uh, booked, that has a clear target. So it's, it's a private transaction. You don't need to be in a hurry say, do I, do I close the book? I don't close the book. And the majority of transactions, SPAC has pay a premium uh, than the IPO. There are many benefits to, to SPACs, but also there, there were quite a few critical remarks recently in the press amongst investors, right? When we look at SPAC performance after the initial hype has subsided, what to you would we have to adjust in the future to really make SPACs 
a lasting option for top-notch companies to to go public. Are there anything, any aspects you would change in the general SPAC structure? The SPAC has more than, I think, 17 years as a structure. So it's not something the people, oh, it's uh, my hypothesis that now uh, it makes more sense. Also because we are in an environment that the interest rates in a lot of countries are negative. So it makes sense for the investor to hold $200 million or a piece of it to bet on someone to find the, 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 a good target. Secondly, is access. Now, a lot of funds say, when it comes to the public market, it's so competitive that I don't have access to the public. I think as anything that, that happened, there is good and bad examples. No? But you see, I think there was a lot of data showing that some specs and these specs really has not performed the first quarter. That I think is, is something that shouldn't be happening. No? Uh, and then I, and, and I think this is the piece that I really believe that we need to be very focused on. No? The performance, the track record, the ability that the company can perform the other quarters and then the credibility that we have, the deep access of data that we feel comfortable to present something that the next quarter is something that they will deliver. Absolutely. And in that sense, obviously, there have been a, people of different backgrounds launching SPACs, right? And you say that we should limit that because obviously looking at your background, looking at Valor, looking at your SPAC board, this is obviously very impressive and creates a lot of uh, confidence in, in, in the transaction. But then we have maybe more from celebrity background investors that are moving into the category because of general interest, but maybe are not the right ones to identify companies to then go public via the SPAC. Should we have criteria there? Should there be registered investors beforehand? Should there be some kind of filtering process in place? And who would actually be able to do it? I'm a big fan of more free market no if there is uh, someone that doesn't have the track record but has uh, like say a celebrity status only to pick one or someone that is not i was an outsider put instead of picking any category but are being backed by by investors so the the the, the investors would, would take the hit i think uh, uh, we, we are in a place that people make decisions on where to invest. No, it's the same way that you choose a company to allocate your uh, a share, um, an allocation of your funds. Uh, I, I think it's the same. I think a lot of people were more focused on the short-term upside of the SPAC and forgot that they need to deliver, they need to perform, no? as anything. No? This happened also in the bubble of the internet in 1999. So things are, I think there, there is oscillation about the hype and the adjustment, but we, but this bubble also create companies or this, like Amazon, like Google. So it, it, uh, it, it's not, you, you cannot uh, throw the baby with the water. No? It's a, a spark is a good element. I think there is a, uh, an adjustment. You no, know, there was less back being funded after what happened. There, maybe there was something. They don't need regulation. The market said, no, it doesn't make sense. I'm not going to invest on this type of spec. And this is a piece also reminds me because we, we launched this back on the 3rd, 4th of May. The market was not extremely favorable, you know, but it was a beautiful day for Latin America because we are suffering for all this information, the political, the COVID, but they said, no, they told me, Mario, as a Latin America representative in the group, say, go after a good target. We trust the region. We understand uh, the value of the entrepreneur. So it was a, a, a beautiful day to be, I, I was honored to be part of this. 
not only the, the amount of money, but also the credibility. And then I will be, uh, I was one of the Latin America on the group receiving this credibility uh, in the name of hundreds of amazing companies, hundreds of amazing entrepreneurs that we have in the region that really uh, are fighters and have created a lot of companies with it as a strong value fully agree in terms of the potentials of the region and the resilience of the entrepreneurs. I mean, what in general they are, they are confronted with uh, is, is, is no small feat in comparison to what uh, you have in Europe or in the US. And uh, going a little bit off script here, but how do you feel? Are we, are we taking full advantage of that entrepreneurial potential in the region? Because obviously on one side, we have the political, economic volatility, and you're, you're obviously quite big also on your NGO work and creating a greater civil society. What can entrepreneurship really bring to the table and contribute to regions such as Latin America? First, I think creating jobs and opportunities is already a huge contribution. I think you don't need to create an a, a NGO to give back to the country. You know, I, I think that everybody has their own stage. Or I, I, I don't like just to criticize someone that because I, I really believe that creating jobs and creating opportunity, paying taxes in the country, uh, generating value, uh, it's something amazing that sometimes we ignore that we need to do good. So taking a huge risk. You know? and, and, and sometimes also I think we lose the perspective about entrepreneurs you know? because we look this. this. Um, I was talking to a friend another day. He told me, Mario, uh, we had an instant success because we have been here 12 years. Right? Go back to Davi you know, from Nubank. And I, say, oh, so I remember meeting him in 2010 showing his idea. We, we don't see all the hurdles, all the uh, of the resilience that you need to put through. And then how many, uh, unfortunately, because it's natural selection, how many people couldn't do it, couldn't execute it? Because it's, uh, it's hundreds of companies, thousands of countries, uh, companies every month being created. And, and we should celebrate the ones that uh, reach a, a great status. But I, I really think that we do have a responsibility. You know, I, I like a lot a phrase from, from Fabio. He used to say, if you want a clean city, no? Go and clean your front. We do have a responsibility to clean our front. If I don't criticize people who are not giving back, because I think allocating your own capital, it takes risk to generate jobs, it, 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 it's huge. Absolutely. Cleaning uh, in front of your own door, uh, that, that makes all the sense, of course. And, and, and in terms of you have to empower people and uh, before complaining and criticizing others, maybe look in your own backyard, what, what do you have to do, right? Exactly. Look your own backyard, clean your own uh, door. So if everybody cleans your own door, the, the seat is going to be cleaner, extremely cleaner. Don't complain about the service. So I, I think we, we do have a much... No, we have too many rights, no? and, and, and sometimes people need to look about their responsibilities. No? And, and this is a piece that I think has a little bit of change uh, in Latin America, but I think we do have an opportunity to get more conscious about our responsibilities. Switching gears there a little bit, talking about the relationship between entrepreneurs and investors, and you sit on several boards and you've been mentoring entrepreneurs for, for many years. Uh, what do you feel uh, is crucial for, an, for a VC that has just joined recently a board of a company? How to act, how to really add value in, in the board and outside the boardroom? What would be your, your general tips for emerging managers that are just embarking on their journey as board members at uh, uh, scale-ups. I really 
really, I, I learn from people that I, I share boards. I love one board member. I remember from the first board I made, they said in the end of the, the meeting, I think, of course, you have the fiduciary responsibility that you, you are responsible, budget, numbers, this is part of it. But, but the, the question is uh, that I love and I ask all my entrepreneurs, say, what keep you awake? Give me things that, because I think you need transparency. How can it be helpful? I think the board is also a resource. You can interview people at least. You know? If you're a board member, you can present, you can allocate resources. You can, because sometimes I think you are on the path of numbers, execution, that I think is important. It's our, our responsibility. But if you stop and ask the, the CEO or the, or the management team of the company, what keep you awake? You know? how, how can we disclose this? And, and, and really engage and, and use the boardroom as resources. Sometimes it's about the battle and, and interaction, but, but I see mature boards and, and mature board members really being what we call smart money. Now, it's not about allocating capital, it's about doing interests, understanding, sharing best practice, presenting and, and being updated about issues strategically. So I, I really think that uh, the board should be a resource. You should choose your board members the same way that when I talk to young people that that want to find a job, I say, oh, Mario, what company should I be work with? I say, did you interview a boss? Who are you going to work with? Because I think the brand of the company is important, but who will you be your manager? It's hugely important because this person will be someone that my career at least changed completely based on the measures that I had, uh, the capabilities that they had, the, the, the opportunities that they gave me. So, I think this is a little bit about the mess. How you you should choose your your, your board wisely, and also see them as a, a resource for you. Makes all the sense. And for entrepreneurs that have evolved and have grown, and and they still have a board which is maybe made up of the early stage investors. How do you actually then adjust your board as your company grows, and that your board can still add value onto your journey? How do you communicate that? First of all, the board dynamics you have to always consider, but how do you make sure that there's a certain rotation in place in the board, which you need as the company grows, I suppose? What, what is your take on that? There's a lot of study behind it about uh, the time people should not stay in the board more than six years because they, they, they also they don't challenge, they, they don't really think differently. And I think the board should be a two-year's contract. I love to ask the question of people say, even like when we are debating about a talent or, or someone that that's, you hire, would you hire him again? Uh, you, you have this board again. <laughs> you put this guy on the board again. So I, I think to stop and think about this, I think it's, uh, it's amazing because you are in the, uh, an automatic pilot and you, 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 you don't think, say, would you hire him again? And the second is, I think there is a balance. I think the boards that I participate to say, oh, what are the gaps, what are business strategies, and what do I need to complement in the board? It's very difficult also to ask people to leave, you know? but I think it, you, you need to be part of this and everybody needs to be ready. Some boards, we use support for outsiders. Also, the, the chairman needs to be very proactive about, oh, this is a two years, we're going to re-engage re in two. These are the needs. Uh, so the needs uh, has, has changed. We need to type. So I, I think stop discussions sometimes, but are completely necessary, completely necessary. Sometimes if the chairman doesn't have the drive to do this, you need to change your, your, your chairman, but you shouldn't have, have someone stuck. I think for the life of the entrepreneur, 
has some dynamics that are different because when you are in the Series D, Series E, and then the big checks, they demand a board seat. It's part of the decision that you make about the money. No, it's a, it's a marriage. But I, I think the the chairman and entrepreneur need to rethink about what's the strategic goals. Are they being complemented? Do I need SG? Do I need accounting? Do I need more a CFO role? I, my problems are related to digital growth. I need someone with the marketing, digital experience. So I think companies know where they can accelerate. We do this a lot where companies, or one example, when Oscar left uh, in the round on Uber, uh, he was a CTO of US, we invite him to join Cargo X board. So this is the type of thing that how can we really leverage? Uh, I think it's our role as we see is not to put us in our boards, really how we leverage our network and allocate the, not only the capital, but also the the best resources that we have, investors, LPs, to be successful in the company. That certainly uh, differentiates probably a really strong investor from maybe a more average investor that maybe gets stuck on the ego question, on uh, more focused on, on his own exposure in the board rather than the value one can bring to the table and the talent and resources you can provide from your own fund to, towards the founder. Uh, yeah, I think everything has a cycle. I think people sometimes, uh, they don't like exits. It's part of life. I, I love the expression in Portuguese that they say, que seja eterno enquanto dure, né? that there has been eternal till it lasts. So it, you, you need to dive in. It should be 100%, but you need to understand that sometimes it's better. And, and, and this, you need to be humble. No, it's, it's tough. I think one of the great pieces for me on when I try to work with people, it's humble. Uh, and resilient. Uh, I think uh, analytical thinking, business judgment, I think something that you can create, but uh, trying to be humble and, and also resilient is something that sometimes is, is, is assets that, that it's very difficult to develop. Indeed, indeed. It's quite a challenge for, for anyone, especially the ones that are quite successful in their career. At one point in time, you, you have that hubris. And in that sense, also, uh, when we talk about the board observer role, for instance, which is sort of that hybrid, right? And it's, it sort of could be a political favor to an investor that you're saying you can stay on board, but you're going to be an observer. How do you manage that observer role? How, how many observers should you actually have, ideally, on a five, seven-person board? Because I feel that balance is sometimes a bit tricky because you don't want to fill up the room with too many spectators also, right? More than seven people, I think the board would be very inefficient. There is also a lot of studies about maybe eight, but because then people don't have their time, they, they are not contributing, not making the, the, cho the choices. And I think there is two types of observers. No? I think that there is the observer that's really is a huge allocation of capital. They didn't let, they didn't, they're let there to listen. But also there is observers that you want them to add value. I'm, a, I'm an observer in one board that, I'm really quite active, you know, so because it's something that I, I know a lot of people, I can help them. But you shouldn't pack in your room because there are going to be, be people that are sleeping or the meetings because everybody to contribute. You know? So the numbers, are, I think seven is a good number. Nine, I think, is would be the limit. Of course, there is exceptions. The boards are better together. And, and more people, you need a good chairman. You really need a good chairman, someone that can articulate, can keep the time. I remember I did a study a long period of time and then the guy was a specialist in executive committees and boards, you know? And he said the most important piece of the board, chairman of the board or the chairman of the executive committee 
is to pose the question and the decision making. So this is the question, this is the input, and the decision is so important that it's unanimous. It's so important that, oh, it's majority. Oh, we're going to give the feedback and, and the management team will decide it. Because sometimes the rules of engagement create all this mess. So, and, then, and when you create the rules of engagement, from the chairman say, this is, this is the problem and this is decision making or this is the outcome for the management team. I think people understand the rules of engagement and, and, in, and, and the process uh, to create a better answer is better because sometimes people, oh, my, my vote doesn't count, I'm not going to speak, you know, or, oh, it's unanimous, I'm going to jump in. Oh, my votes don't count, I will speak now because maybe he's influencing. So it's very important uh, to, to have a good chairman that will frame the question and, and give direction about the decision-making process. Really great points there. And uh, before moving towards the end, I wanted to ask you, which company sectors are you particularly excited about in the Brazilian and the LATAM ecosystem? What do you think is up and coming? Where, where should we uh, watch out uh, in terms of any sectors that are particularly exciting at the moment? I'm a little keen right now, and maybe also it's my job so on, on insurance. I think what has been created in, in the fintech space over the last uh, nine to 10 years, uh, it's really uh, something that we haven't seen on the insurance. I think a lot of the same premises on the big players, incumbent technology, and then the regulatory framework is helping the regions right now that, that, that you can accelerate. There is a lot of also a comparable from the U.S. market. And you can really use technology to rethink and revisit uh, how you insure people and how you, you deliver solutions. We are, we are really looking on, on this. Uh, we're going to announce a, a co-investment shortly. The investor is, is coming for our country, not German, but from Chile. But we are, with others, bringing him to Brazil. So it's something that I'm, I'm really excited. I see a lot of opportunity. In our thesis for, for the investment, we really like uh, new models that's applying technology uh, to revisit a solution. You know? It's uh, like GymPass or Cargo X. Or... So the, the reason, we are also very excited with digital assets. We just announced uh, a lot of investments in digital. We were early investors on Coinbase. Uh, our fund one did Coinbase. We really were there. It's not something, it's a new hype or trend. We, we're being looking for this since 2014. We have deployed capital in, in amazing uh, solutions uh, in the region. Uh, and, and we believe like companies like Stablecoin, that sell coin, that's someone that we invested, that we're going to give a crypto that is dollar nominated, that we're going to demand and control the, the, the value we call Stablecoin. We also deploy capital in Dapper Flow, Dapper Flow, Dapper Labs Flow. Uh, that is creating a tremendous solution for NFT and, and really deploying solutions for blockchain and the flow currency or crypto from, from gamers and collectibles. So we really think that in the end, uh, it's not about what problem are we solving. So imagine someone that really enhance a solution that is a stable coin dollar. Uh, what can we do in the cross-border business? It's huge and so complex and send money. To, to go to, so it's, you can do, have two wallets and, and transfer $100, $200. So yesterday night, we talked to Pai, say, oh, I'm paying someone in Portugal and it's 100 euros and the bank is, paying, is charging me 50 euros. It's, it's ridiculous. So to say, 
So imagine, and, and he's a Brazilian, so imagine what this can do in the way that we transfer money globally for small amounts. Second, uh, I really believe people love collectibles. A lot of people, and it's a market uh, that it, it's ready to be, to explode. Uh, and, and the solutions then, and the technical team, the ability that they have created are amazing. So we are really uh, also focused on, on digital assets and, and, and we believe that uh, the, the digital assets will have a strong return if they are being allocated to really solving a problem. I, I love when I talk to entrepreneurs what problem you're solving. You know? I think crypto is, is not a, a solution by itself, but a stable coin for a cross-border is a solution for consumers. But I think people sometimes uh, look about the technology I'm about what problem you're solving. Couldn't agree more. And that's a huge problem by itself, right? Uh, the pains we have with cross-border transaction, especially in, in Latin America, there's so much potential there and a huge market opportunity. And if you look at El Salvador, that has just approved, if I'm not mistaken, crypto or Bitcoin for, as a legal tender. So, so it gets really exciting and the, the momentum is certainly there. Also great hearing that, that Intratech news, I might know the company you're talking about. Uh, so really excited. Presumably when that podcast is going live, it's already in the news. Really excited about that. I think it's fantastic news for the ecosystem. Wrapping things slightly up, we've got a, a fast speed round segment, which are three questions I'm asking everybody on the podcast. Are you ready for those three questions? <laughs> I'm ready. Okay, fantastic. Good. First question, who is an entrepreneur you admire and why? I think David Velas, because of the resilience, the opportunity, the numbers speak by itself. I also know a lot of people that doesn't have the same spotlight, that has strong resilience, that have created a lot of... But I think for Latin, creating a financial institution that people love is something that needs a lot of execution and the right culture. No, it's so impressive what... Uh... David has, has built there at Newbank. It's definitely a benchmark for, for many entrepreneurs in the region, but also globally. If you just look at the numbers, I mean, bigger than any neobank in the US and uh, Europe combined. I mean, <laughs> it's just crazy. And uh, moving over to the second question, in one phrase, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Wow, I received so many good advice uh, in, in life. I'm so grateful about, but the best one... I think there was a place that I was in the transition that I think was very important. Uh, when uh, I was fired at Visa and then I came back to Brazil and I was a, a very high senior position in, in Visa. And then when I came back to Brazil, the, it was 2003, the opportunities were not there. And I was really looking for a title. The title was 40, no, 37 years old. What's the title? What's the title? What's the title? No? And then when, when Headhunter told me, he said, Mario, I think it's better for you to be the second pilot of a good Scuderia, uh, how to say F1, the McLaren or the, third, the, the, the brand, instead of being a first pilot on a brand that's not going to... Because if you have a good car, if you trust your pilot, you know, you're going to win races again. So this for me was something because sometimes you, you look for the wrong piece about a little bit of ego or title or... And then said, no, Mario, the opportunity is being the second pilot and win race again. And I was, I took a downgrade. I took his advice. And two years later, I was back as a senior officer of a bank going to the executive committee because I was able in a good F1 car to go back and win some races. 
crucial advice uh definitely uh, important to to bet on the right car being in the right car not necessarily on on what seat i think that the car really matters at one point in time and um last question three keywords that describe a successful business in your opinion wow I really think it's, it's about consumer i'm a big fan of nps i'm a big fan of, of analysis about the consumer the recommendation I think be part of consumer. Uh, I think there is uh, pieces that sometimes get old, but be advocacy about the brand. As a professor for Harvard say, say, oh, you really measure success when you uh, tattoo the brand in your body. So based on this criteria, the biggest success is Harley Davidson, the second is Apple. So Apple well, in the US was the second most tattoo <laughs> brand uh, according to his study. So I think someone to tattoo you uh, emotionally, it, it's something very strong, very strong. And also success for me is related to our expectations. Now, I think there is a, a philosopher, they say success is really the projection that you have for yourself in the future. And then uh, the ability or in the future, you're going to be in that position. And then uh, sometimes uh, people who are not in this position has the resilience to continue fighting and others can get miserable. So I, I think it's very personal uh, success. It's very personal also uh, being happy. Sometimes I believe we, we try to use, I think ambition is something that is a, is a element that a lot of people misunderstand sometimes because I think, at least for me in Brazil, ambition means that you are killing people to achieve your goals. And I think it's not. I think it's really the energy that you need because you, you want this type of projection for your life. You know? and, and, and this varies for people. I think you, know, you need to be connected to your own ambitions and then to really be focused on what you executed. Success is about, for me, working towards, with resilience, uh, toward your long vision of yourself such great advice there and uh, thanks so much for your time Mario it was really great having you on really exciting uh, content there and uh, before we wrap up is there anything else you would like to share before we close off no I'd like to thank you everybody uh, thank you for the opportunity also uh, sometimes we look ourselves there was a lot of people that was around us no I'm, I'm representing a brand that gave me a lot of opportunity but also I'm very grateful for everybody. Bad or good experience that I have to reach me here. And I'd like to thank you for the interview. It was was fast, nice, and, and congratulations for what you've been doing. Thanks so much, Mario. Appreciate it.